Welcome to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance, where top-level COOs share the insights, tactics, and strategies that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Christy Pitts is a partner and chief of staff at Backstage Capital. And Backstage Capital is a VC company that searches out venture capital deals for groups that are funded less than 10% of the time. These are represented or underrepresented groups, are companies where the founders are either women, people of color, or members of the LGBT community. In 2015, Backstage Capital set the audacious goal to invest in 100 high-quality startups led by underrepresented founders by 2020. They reached that goal a year and a half early, funding 100 companies. Christy has extensive experience creating valuable partnerships between startups and Fortune 500 top 20 corporations and joins backstage from her role as a venture development manager at Verizon Ventures. I also first heard of Backstage Capital, I guess I heard of them about a year or so ago, but then heard their founder or co-founder Arlen, who's the CEO on a, uh, a podcast called Startup Bus recently. So I was really excited to be able to bring Christy on the show. So Christy, welcome to the Second in Command podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. Yeah, really looking forward to hearing kind of the rest of the story. I like hearing the ideas and the stories from the chief behind the chief. So maybe tell us <laughs> how, how you got involved with Arlen and how you got involved with Backstage and what was it that you attracted, uh, attracted you to, I guess, their mission into the business? Sure. I guess we do have some time together, so I'll keep a long story medium. How's that? Great. Perfect. Okay. Wonderful. Prior to working at Backstage, I actually spent quite some time working at Verizon. So my most recent role was on the Ventures team, but I was with Verizon for almost 13 years in total. And I was really lucky during the time that I worked at Verizon because I came in uh, on the very front lines. So I started as a part-time customer service representative working in a retail store. And I helped people like this was in 2005. So think about, think about the phone that you had before the Motorola Razor came out. Yeah. So it might have been like a Nokia candy bar phone or might have been a flip phone without a camera. Yeah. And that was the era of when I started there. Okay. And um, the, the reason why, yeah, Palm Trio. <laughs> <laughs> I remember those phones very, that was exactly the time frame. I love so, them too. Yes, they were like the original smartphone. Yeah. <laughs> So I was really fortunate because what I didn't realize being very young and taking that job was that I was obsessed with mobile and I was getting a front row seat into an industry that was about to explode mm. because it was it was about 18 months, two years before the iPhone was announced and, and okay. came out. So anyways, through my role at Verizon, I had or my time at Verizon, I had several different roles. And one of them was in leading operations and marketing for a large region for Verizon Wireless's business units. This is very similar. This is very similar to a COO role, but it was a kind of like a sub-business unit within Verizon. Sure. But for context, we were doing four billion dollars a year in annual revenue from our units. So it was it was a pretty significant pretty piece big of business. business. Yeah. yeah. In that particular role in being responsible for marketing, one of the ways that we measured success was in our ability to attract multicultural customers. So Verizon recognized very early that the demographics were changing in the United States and that um, not only was there changes in terms of like wealth management, but also in terms of who was driving the economy and who was making buying purchases and decisions. Mm. And as a brand, we had a very, you might call it um, pale and stale demographic. 
we were doing great in terms of indexing with your traditional kind of core demographic, but we weren't doing so well when it came to gaining adoption in multicultural demographics like the Latinx community or the Asian American community and so forth. Sure. And the reason why this was particularly important for me was because the unit that I managed had customers in Northern California, Northern Nevada, and Hawaii. And if you took my customer base and you measured it against any of the other customer bases, we had the most diverse customer base. So for multicultural efforts, we were, were really the test bed of mm. these different multicultural efforts that were happening at Verizon. Mm. What's really, really interesting here is that most big brands have focused a lot of time, energy, and dollars towards addressing multicultural customers for at least a decade. When I was in this job at Verizon, we're talking 2011 and we're in 20, late 2018 right now. Yep. Clorox, McDonald's, Walmart, all of the major brands have already diversified their product lineups. They've diversified their marketing campaigns because they know the future of their customer is diverse. The reason why I'm, I'm sharing all of that is because after some time in that role and some other roles, I moved into the ventures team with Verizon. And I didn't really know venture that well, but I understood that venture investors were investing in companies that would mature you know, five years on the short end, five to seven to 10 years out from when they made their investments. I had come out of this mindset that the diverse dollar <laughs> was becoming more and more impactful. And the further you look down the time horizon, the greater that influence was. So for investors that were investing in companies where their businesses were maturing a decade from now, it was a no-brainer to me that the founders should be diverse, the people building the products should be diverse, the customer go-to-market strategy should be diverse. And unfortunately, when I got into venture, not only was it not diverse, it was as homogenous as you could get. Wow. Over, Yeah, you know, more than 90% of funding was going to straight white male founders. More than 90% of decision makers at investment firms were straight white men. And it just didn't make any sense at all. I understood from a business perspective right away that there was a lot of money being left on the table and it was just a, a loss. And I, I set out to find people that understood this as a problem. Mm. And, and there were a lot of folks who are working on this from a social impact perspective, because obviously right. providing opportunity to people who may not have had opportunity in the past is good social work. But I wasn't really motivated from a social perspective. I was motivated by the business perspective. Right. Yep. And, and that's when I found Arlen. And Arlen was speaking the same language that I was speaking. When um, she actually wrote a blog post called Dear White Venture Capitalists, if you're reading this, it's almost too late, where she right. lays out the business case for investing in diverse founders. And so we actually originally met and connected through Twitter. That was about... I guess almost two and a half years ago now, almost three years, somewhere okay. around that. Okay. We met, we kept in touch. I came over to work at Backstage in a part-time capacity as a consultant while staying on at Verizon full-time. And that was as Backstage was continuing to grow. And then I came over full-time in August of last year. So it's been just about a year. So clearly she, she saw some clear, huge skill sets in you, but also I guess the big part was culturally you were completely aligned as well. Right. What were the big lessons? And it was, it was funny that you mentioned Verizon. I used to coach the second in command at Sprint and also coach the CEO for a little bit over at Sprint. And um, I know nothing about the, the telecommunications space, but they were definitely <laughs> not going after the demographic that, that you were focusing on either. Tell me a little bit about uh, the big lessons that you were able to pull from Verizon then and that you've brought with you today. Sure. So I think I could go on for hours about how wonderful it was to work at Verizon. I mm -hmm. just really had a great experience there. Some things that I really appreciated about Verizon was that there was a culture of integrity 
at that organization from the top mm. down. And it's really, it's enumerated. It's a part of the culture for all of the employees on the team. And because I started there at such a young age, I took it for granted that integrity right. would be part of an organization. And it wasn't until news came out, like the news about Volkswagen, for example, that I realized that this wasn't the case at all organizations. So coming into backstage at the early time that I did, I think Arlen also has a very high level of integrity. And I think that's something that we've continued. And I also would say something that's important at Verizon is a, a level of operational excellence. Hmm. When it came to our network buildouts, for example, or what we provided our customers in terms of service and experience, we thought about processes, implementing processes, and then we thought about fail safes and what happens when the first process doesn't work out correctly. What do we do? And I think, you know, I don't have personal experience to compare that to other places, but I think that taking that sense of operational excellence to building processes within Backstage has been very helpful. We've set up structures around different areas of the company very early on that have helped things have strong foundations and be ready to scale. So tell for, for a listener who may not know what Backstage Capital is, walk us through kind of your, your brief business model, what, what exactly you do and, um, and how you do it and what, what is differentiating you. Sure. So we're a, a, we're a venture capital firm. And what that means is we're basically money managers at the end of the day. We raise money from LPs, which are limited partners. Uh, they invest in Backstage and into a specific fund. So we gather LPs, they all invest together into a fund, and then we manage that fund uh, by finding startups to invest in. And then we support those startups and help them grow. Ideally, they'll grow over time to have a successful outcome, which could be a successful merger or acquisition, or maybe they go public on the stock market. At that time, we would get the return from that investment and distribute it back to our investors. Okay. So how do you support the companies that you're investing in? Sure. So we have um, 100 companies that we've invested in, and we invest across all industries and sectors. And a, a really common question I get is, isn't it a distraction or doesn't it pull you in multiple directions to be supporting like marketplace company on one side, like a consumer company, and then on the other side, you have an enterprise or a frontier tech company? And the answer is that because our companies are almost all at the same place when we make investment, hmm. so when and typically, we're investing between 25K to 100K in these companies. Okay. We find that there's a lot of resources that we can provide that scale across the entire portfolio. For example, we have most of our companies are in a place where they're making their maybe not their first outside hires, but a few critical outside hires. People like a head of operations or a VP of engineering, those types of titles. Yep. And so we find that by providing support to them for recruiting, for example, it helps, you know, we had a lot of the portfolio companies taking advantage of it. And it's something that's a value add for many of them. So we try to provide these services through a network of mentors, regular private sessions where we'll have like a somebody that's an expert in a certain area come and speak with a portfolio, for example, uh, and other things like that. Now, you guys had a really, that, you know, that very aggressive goal that I mentioned in our intro about um, investing in 100 companies over a five-year period that you crushed that goal. How did you end up um, hitting that goal so quickly? And how did you select the, the 100 companies? Well, something that's really interesting about Backstage is I think that we, it, just by existing, I think that we help to disprove a lot of the commonly held false narratives in the tech industry. So the reason why I'm bringing that up is because when Arlen first started raising for our first fund, many investors said, oh, there's not enough quality companies 
led by diverse founders. Like that's why you see a lack of diversity. It's because the companies just don't exist. That's not true. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. So actually what we found by when, once we started, you know, really rolling and the word got out that we were making investment, we were inundated with really high quality companies. We probably could have made a hundred investments even faster that, than we did. I think the pace that we made investments at was the right pace for us hmm. because we were also growing on our own and, and building up our own strengths and then also securing the funding in order to make the investments. So all of those things had to be in place. But we looked at over 3,000 companies in order to make the 100 wow. investments we made. Originally, what was happening was Arlen was both fundraising and taking all the pitches herself. And then she continued to fundraise and I came in and started taking pitches with her. And then even that was not scalable. Like there were some days where I would open up my calendar and I would have like 14 pitch meetings just back to back to back all day long. Yeah. And yeah, it just wasn't working. So then um, earlier this year, we built or we set up our deal flow team. And that has been such a great improvement for our operations. What we have now is we have about six people, seven people on the team who all work together to evaluate companies. And we've streamlined this through an application process. So companies apply for funding on our website, and then those applications get assigned to somebody on the deal flow team. And then the deal flow team is consistently reviewing the applications and communicating back to founders. What we do is once the deal flow team has identified high potential companies, we establish a day for deal flow review where they, the deal flow team brings those companies to, you know, they, they go through some initial diligence and then they come and present to the whole group. And then after that day, we make a decision on whether we move forward or not. This year, we've made multiple investments through that process. And the more we do it, the more we refine it. So I think that that'll be kind of the underlying foundation for how we evaluate deal flow in the future. I have a, a historically horrible record at identifying good early stage companies. I told the founder of 1-800-GOT-JUNK he could never franchise junk removal. Then I just had to help him grow it after I was wrong because he was able to start franchising. <laughs> and then I told the founder of Uber it was a dumb idea when he was pre-launch. How do you know what is a good idea? What are you trusting? What data are you looking at? Um, and how do you get a deal team to be looking at that when you and Arland aren't as involved? Yeah. Do you lose sleep over the Uber thing? Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> That's little okay. Bit. I'm sure there's going to be situations like that for us too, especially because there's such a high volume of companies that we don't get to have personal conversations with every single company that comes through, right? Yeah, so yeah. we might evaluate their application, not understand it. And then, you know, that might be the next Uber. And that's just going to have to be what it is. I think being in this business. So you're okay with that? Yeah. I mean, it doesn't feel good, but ultimately there's some constraints around the process, right? And we're never going to win 100%. I think what we see when we look at our existing portfolio is we're seeing a lot of healthy signs. Like the founders are raising follow-on funding. They're seeing additional traction. They're landing bigger customers. Like there's a lot of good signs, but you know, it's, it's hard to tell. Like sometimes we make investments pre-product and pre-revenue and in those cases, we're really just uh, evaluating the company based on the strengths of the founding team. Is that mostly what you look for, the founding team, considering it is so early? Yeah. So we say, so are you familiar with this concept of pattern matching? Yes. Okay. So pattern matching can have a negative connotation, right? Mm-hmm. It's like you only pattern match for the dropout from Stanford or Harvard or whatever. But we say that we pattern match for grit, meaning that we're looking for founders who have demonstrated that they can do a lot with a little. Yeah. Yeah. So we're, we're looking at the founding team and we also 
we look at the business model, the business idea, the team. But I think the thing that's unique about our founders is I would say for the most part, looking across the portfolio, like they are not going to give up. Yeah. Until and it's funny because you can you can see grit in a, a 30 year old, but you can see it when they were 12. You can see it when they were 15. You can see it when they were 18. Like they have that grit all the way through their life. They don't, you, this grit isn't something you learn. You either right. have or you don't. Yep. So you do look at the core behavioral traits then and start to, to make some analysis around those. Yeah. And I think something else that's interesting is that people oftentimes think like, oh, you're working with underrepresented founders. So the stories are that they're maybe their backgrounds are they're down and out, like they haven't had access to things. A lot of our founders are really successful in their own right. For example, they went to schools like MIT, Stanford, and Harvard, and they had successful careers in other industries before identifying a problem that they decided to go and address by starting a company. Sure. So that's something else that we try to help um, change the narrative around in terms of what a successful founder can look like. That's interesting. Okay. So you've, you're making very small investments in each of these companies in the 25 to 50,000 range, I think you said. Are mm-hmm. you starting to increase those at all over time? And so, are you doing follow-on investing with some of these companies as well? Yeah. So we set the expectation for the companies that we would not be making follow-on funding when we made the first investments. Mm -hmm. And that was, if we think about where we were in the timeline, we were just not in a position to, right? We had just, we were just raising the first fund to invest in them for the first time, right? Yeah. So we have, so our goal now is to be able to provide follow-on funding for our portfolio. And I think we're going to be doing, I don't know, I guess what I should say is, we have not announced a follow-on fund specifically. Uh, what we have announced as our next major funding initiative is a new larger fund, which is a $36 million target. Mm. We're calling it, it's kind of tongue-in-cheek, but the name of the fund is It's About Damn Time. <laughs> <laughs> the thesis around this particular fund is providing a $1 million checks, so an initial check of $1 million, uh, yep. into Black women founders. That could mean, you know, we have, I, I think it's 38% of our existing portfolio is fits that thesis. So it could be some of our existing portfolio companies, but we think there's going to be companies in there that we have not yet invested in. Sure. That makes and sense. then, yeah, along, we're working on a few different initiatives at the same time to support the existing portfolio with follow on, but it, it'll be separate from this fund. I, I love the fun name of it's about damn time. When, uh, when Oprah covered us at 1-800-GOT-JUNK back in, it was like 2003, her episode was called It's About Time. So, Oh, cool. And I think you're on the right track with this one. Yeah, <laughs> um, good synergy. Yeah, we, had, we went in and cleaned up this pack rat, this woman who's a complete pack rat in, uh, in LA and completely purged her house. And I guess it was about time because it was years in the making that this woman's house should have been cleaned up. What surprised you when, when you met the goal so early? Was there anything that, um, that you saw or encountered? Was there any, anything that helped you hit that goal that you were surprised on? Or is there anything you stumbled on that helped you hit it? I don't, I can't think of anything, any surprises necessarily. I do think what was funny is we had embraced this goal, 100 companies by 2020. Uh, We set it up as kind of a unifying goal within the company. So people were, had it as a, you know, kind of like a motivator or milestone that we were working towards. And then I remember in January, we were looking at the portfolio and we we're like, oh, hey, we once we finalize this next investment, we're going to be somewhere around 80 companies. And then we kind of like looked at each other and we we're like, whoa, wow. <laughs> <laughs> this is not, 
this is not going to take until 2020. And then we knew for some time before we came public about it, that we would be far ahead of our schedule. Now, Dave McClure was was kind of doing the whole 500 startups years ago, and um, I guess he kind of pushed through that number, and you guys have have surpassed your number. Was the number important, or now is there a quality metric there? Do you have any anything that you measure the success of your investments on? Is there a net promoter score that you use? Is there a success metric that you look at? What are you focusing on kind of for phase two with these companies of the 100 that you've invested in? Yeah. So I think it is the backstage, we call them the backstage 100. And I think for us, the number 100 is really symbolic. The reason is because of our mission. Obviously, our business model is that we, we're finance managers. So we, you know, we manage money, we return on investment. We recognize that there is a social impact to the work that we're doing. And a big piece of that impact is helping to change the narratives around entrepreneurship, around funding and who gets funding. But also, it's not just changing narratives. It's also changing outcomes. And so the reason why I want to just spend a couple seconds talking about this is because there's, there are a lot of problems in tech that are related to a lack of diversity. And there are a lot of different levels. So for example, there's a lack of diversity in talent pools in tech. And you can see this in reports that are released by companies sure. when, they, yeah. when they show their staffing, right? But also another example is there's wealth inequality. And one of the reasons for this is when you have a wealth creating event at a startup, the people that benefit the most from that outside of the investors are the early employees and the founders. Yeah. What happens is if the founders who are gaining wealth from these events, they go on to be the next angel investors or the next LPs. Yeah. So when that flywheel is homogenous, you're just creating, more you know, it's same. foundational. It's creating more of the same, right? Yeah. So being, getting capital into the hands of qualified founders that are diverse founders actually creates a chain reaction. Diverse founders recruit diverse teams. So you help to solve the problem of who's building the tech, right? It's proven over and over again that diverse teams are more successful from a business perspective. Yeah. And then when these wealth events occur, those people that become wealthy will be diverse and they'll have optionality. They can then go on to invest in the next crop of founders. All of these pieces were really important to us. And the 100 number was where we said we knew if we could get capital into the hands of 100 founders, that would be significant in terms of the change that we can make in the future. That's where that goal came from. Okay, that makes sense. And are you are you nudging those 100 founders now to start putting equity you know, options in the hands of their employees to, to, to really kind of get that diversity butterfly effect happening faster? Yeah, actually, I don't think we have to nudge them. I think it's pretty standard that startup job offers come with salary plus equity package. And okay. I think our, our founders stick with that. They're doing it. Okay, cool. Yeah, they're, they're already doing it. The whole, the, the lure or the legend of the PayPal mafia back in um, in California. I mean, Elon Musk's brother worked for me back in 93 and so did his cousin who built Solar City. And to see their little network of, of connection of friends, it is pretty incestuous. And here in Vancouver, we call it the, the maple syrup mafia because it's got the <laughs> And it's the same. really seriously. Yeah, yeah, we call it the Maple Syrup Mafia. It's really funny. Like um, Ryan Holmes from Hootsuite and Harley from um, Shopify, and like they've got this like Canadian gang of. But it's the same thing. It's the same group. We we have the C100, which is there's a hundred venture capitalists in the Bay Area that are from Canada, and there's more VCs in California from Canada than there are VCs in Canada. Um, hmm. But they fund the same deals. Like it is just that same homogenous. And I think they are massively missing out. So it's interesting. The last four guests that I've interviewed for the Second in Command podcast that just aired 
the last four that we aired were all female COOs. And I was just talking to my director of ops, who's female as well. And I just said, there's, we got to make sure that we've got balance that I don't want to run out of, of um, female COOs. We're not pushing them all out too quick. Are we? And she goes, no, no, we're like 50, 50. I'm like, God, this is awesome. Like it, it really yeah. is. It's the right group. Yeah, there's a lot of, there's some interesting press around the tendency for COOs to be female, by the way. There's an article that I had. In Forbes. Yeah, yeah. Or no, it's in Fortune. The one that says, yeah, yeah, these women could be the tech industry's next great CEOs or not. Yeah, I'm in that article. Ah, that's so cool. I just missed, yeah, I just forgot which magazine. Yeah, it's a black black magazine from about two months ago. And it was covering, um, there was an online portion and the offline portion. But it was a really great piece around this. And I've, I've always believed in it too. But yeah, I think we just have to keep busting this myth. Now, are you getting pushback from the the male-dominated VC community at all? Or are they just letting you do your thing and they're not in the way? Yeah. Um, not, that, not that them getting in your way is ever <laughs> going to stop you anyway. <laughs> it's interesting. I think that there are some people, I don't know. I don't know if I would say we get pushback. I think that there are definitely a lot of folks out there who don't understand what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And I think there are a lot of folks who also think like, oh, they have small amount of funds, so they're not really a threat. Yeah. Because you know we're investing twenty five k, and maybe they work at a firm that has more than a billion dollars under management. Sure. So that's fine. I wouldn't say that we get pushback necessarily. I would say sometimes we do run into challenges that are, but they're not unique to us. I think the challenges that we run into are like the structural challenges in the industry. Our twenty five k check is not going to take our founders from get to IPO. Right. It's going to, you know, it's going to be part of many rounds of funding that they're going to need to successfully raise. I wouldn't say necessarily that we have any situations where people are targeting us, but we do provide a lot of support to our founders trying to help them raise follow-on funding and make that process easier for them. Because if you look at the statistics, the odds are stacked against them before they even get started. Now, are you connecting a lot of those dots for them? Is that part of the service or part of the value that you bring? We do. I don't. Yeah, I'd say we are. We play an active role in making introductions. Sometimes we've even gone to the point where we'll set up time with a VC and walk our founders in and sit in on the pitch meetings. Hmm. That isn't something that we've done on a regular basis, but some, but we have done it before. So I would say, in terms of the type of support that we provide for our companies, this providing access to capital and helping them fundraise is a critical piece of their success, and it's something that's going to be a priority for us for a long time. It's interesting. I, I was um, just thinking about about your role as as kind of second in command, and you've played a few roles in the operation since you joined. Were you always operating in that kind of second in command type role, but just title being changed along the way, or did did your role completely shift at some point? I think my role has shifted a few times, but it's always been second in command, and then we just choose a title that we think fits the best at the moment. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I've been pushing back with all so many young early stage companies. I keep saying you're overtitling, like you're giving out titles that are way too big, way too early, and it just causes it causes salary inflation, and it causes expectation differences that shouldn't be there. That you know, 20 years ago to have a C level title, you had to be a major player at a major company, and and now it's like we're giving out a C level title for everything in the company. But you truly are playing that second in command role, right? Sometimes I do tell my husband, like, hey, I'm a chief operating officer. And he's right. like, yeah, okay, babe. <laughs> right, exactly. You know that um, Harvard actually wrote a really interesting article, I don't know, probably 10, 12 years ago, called The Misunderstood Role of the COO. And oh. they, they identified seven distinct types of chief operating officers. In, in some cases, the COO is very outward facing. I think in this case, it would be like Harley Finkelstein from Shopify. 
is a very outward facing biz dev sales marketing COO, while his founder, the CEO, is very inward facing tech and operations. In other cases, it flips where the COO is very inward facing and the CEO is kind of outward, et cetera, et cetera. So in your case, Arlen is very outward facing, you know, media, a strong, wickedly strong presence. I've always believed the role, one of the roles of the COO is to make the CEO iconic. You know, we're almost that consigliere that we're in the shadows and we're to, our job is to make them iconic. How do you work in the shadows of Arlen and, and continue to make her iconic and make her kind of so the brand kind of focused on her name? Because it is in a way, is it not? Sure. So I think Arlen represents Backstage in a lot of different ways. Our investment thesis is that we invest in companies led by underrepresented founders and we define that as women, people of color, and LGBT. And Arlen fits in all three She's of those categories. Yeah. yeah. So from the beginning, Arlen has embodied what we're doing at Backstage. Got it. And I also think it's really critical and important for me to point out something, which is that there are not a lot of gay Black women that are heralded as movers and shakers in tech. It's in true. addition to, I think, like the difference in our roles, I also think it's really important that Arlen and the other diverse members on our team have screen time and have time on stage and so forth. Yep. So I think that's a component of it. But also the two of us have a very strong partnership and we work really well together. What I'll say is like, for example, she has a really demanding travel schedule and she does a lot of speaking engagements. And that has brought a ton of value back to Backstage and not only in terms of raising our profile and making more people aware of what we're working on, like, for example, it's not uncommon for her to have a speaking engagement and then for that to lead to uh, opportunities for us, like an investment opportunity sure. or an investor, right? We really just delineate the roles. I'll know, for example, what her travel schedule and her speaking schedule looks like, and those will be her priorities. And then also where we never stop fundraising. So that's a, another big priority for us right now. And then on the flip, I'm telling her, you know, you can feel comfortable walking out on that stage in front of that audience because what's happening back at the shop is all of these things are getting done, A, B, C, D, E. And here's the status update on where we are. It's very operational and project management driven. I think the thing that works out well is that I am happy and thrilled to tell the story about what we're doing at Backstage, mm -hmm. but I don't feel like an innate drive. Like sure. I've spoken to friends who have um, leadership roles in companies and they're like, oh, this person's always speaking and I don't have a chance to speak. And that's not me at all. Yeah. Like I'm like, I'm happy to get up and speak, but I think Arlen, I think it's important that we have people of color representing change in tech. So that's great. And that's then I also, I'm motivated to do a really good job and make sure our company is doing well. And that's more important to me. It's a great balance. Do either of you attend, I go to the main TED conference every year, but I was at TED Women last year in San Francisco. It was a mind-blowing, fantastic community. Have either of you attended that one at all? No, I think Arlen had actually planned to go to TED in Vancouver this year. And then we weren't, she wasn't able to make it at the last minute. Like we had a, a challenge with it. Check out TED Women as well, because it actually might slam your entire, it might even be a better fit than TED itself. TED Women is, is one of the, I think, three or four big um, kind of global events they put on. Mm -hmm. But it's a really, really fantastically strong community too. How do you and Arlen stay on the same page with your vision and with her travel schedule? What meeting rhythms do you have in place to keep you on the same page? What technology tools are you using? Anything there that you can share? Oh, yeah. So one thing that's important about Backstage is we're, we are a remote team. And that has been consistent from the beginning. So even when I was at Verizon and Arlen had just been at Backstage or had we had just started Backstage for like nine months or something like that, I was based in the Bay Area and she was in LA. 
And as we've grown the team, we have team members throughout the country, and we actually have a couple of nomadic folks on the team as well who work from different countries or cities around the U.S. That doesn't make us envious at all, does it? <laughs> I mean, I'm a little envious of them, yeah. not going to lie. <laughs> yeah, I am too. <laughs> the thing is that, that that really helps because we've never been in an environment where we have like a hub where decisions are made. We've always been distributed. So we've, we use digital tools like Slack, for example, which we love. And I think the thing is decisions get made in Slack or on Zoom meetings or on conference calls. And the people that need to be involved are included from the beginning. So along those same lines, Arlen and I will have partner meetings. We usually either see each other. We typically, we work hard to see each other face-to-face at least once a week. So I'll meet her in different cities or she'll meet me, for example. And that doesn't always happen. And when it doesn't, we usually do a virtual meeting, like a conference call, for example. And that's where she'll give me an update on things. I'll give her updates. And then we set the next time for our meeting and we keep rolling. And that's been really effective so far this year. So I think that'll be something we continue for the near future. That's awesome. Where are you guys struggling? Where Where do you... I mean, everybody, you know, Ray Kroc, who, who built McDonald's, said, when you're green, you're growing. When you're ripe, you're rotting. Where are you guys <laughs> struggling as an organization? I like that quote. It's so true. <laughs> I think, I don't know if I would say struggle, but I think something that has always been for us and will be for the near future, at least, is around fundraising Mm -hmm. and having, I think there's two pieces. So we're fundraising for our $36 million fund. I can't speak too much about that except to say that it's going well. So that's good. We're also fundraising for our other company. So we have a company called Backstage Studio, which is an operating company. Mm -hmm. We fundraise for studio for operating capital. Having funding and runway is something that has been a challenge and will probably continue to be a challenge, at least for the short term. And so that's something that we have to be really conscious about, making like prudent financial decisions and keeping our burn rate very lean and so forth. Now, are you finding that the demographic that you're actually trying to invest in, the female and minority and LBGT, are you getting those same demographics as investors as well? We do have a fairly diverse set of LPs in comparison to other firms, but I don't think it's as diverse as we'd love it to be. Yeah. And we actually list our LPs on our website and we have, okay. we have really great LPs. Is Martine, so, Martine Rothblatt an investor yet? Uh, She's a trans CEO, the highest paid female CEO in, in North America right now, but started life as a guy. She was the founder of Sirius Satellite Radio and then now is the CEO of United Therapeutics. You're putting me on the spot. I would love to have her as an LP, Martine, if you're listening. She, would, she, does, she is an investor. I can make an introduction later, but she's a fantastic person. Um, she and her wife have been together forever. Their daughter's in a mastermind with me and they go to the TED conference every year, but she is, she is a VC and does invest and strong, strong component in this whole community too, that she could be a really interesting investor for you. Sure. Yeah. I'd love to talk to her. Okay. Where are you working on in terms of your personal growth? I mean, you clearly have, have excelled in your career. You're doing amazing, you know, what, what the work you did with Verizon, but the work you're doing now with Backstage. Where are you working on your own skills? Thank you. So I work with a coach and I've worked with her for over two years. And I can't say enough about how helpful it is to have a coach. So shout out to Amy Logan. If you're listening, Amy, you're the best. And she was really helpful for me in actually navigating the transition from Verizon to Backstage, especially oh, cool. because... Like I said, I always loved the work that I did at Verizon. So it was, a, it was a hard decision for me to make the change. Although I feel very strongly that I made the right choice. Actually, Amy and I are doing something new, which I haven't done before, which is a 360 feedback. Okay. 
Have you done this before? You said you were a coach. I've done a bunch. Yeah. And I, I had a, a mentor coach years ago who was being groomed as the CEO at Starbucks. And we would do an hour every month over the phone, but then a full day in person every quarter. And he showed up in Vancouver years ago. And I said, I've got our agenda all set for tomorrow. He goes, oh yeah, but I've changed that. I'm like, really? He goes, yeah, I'll see you for dinner at six. I'm like, well, you're, you're here for a whole day with me. He goes, yeah, I know. I'm meeting with all of your direct reports one-on-one for an hour. I'll see you at dinner. I'm like, oh, fuck, what the hell's going to happen? So this guy did like a live 360 with my team and came back with some of the most insightful and empowering. It was really huge. Good. I'm a little nervous. Yeah. We just, just yesterday, I was introducing Amy to different people for the 360. But I think to answer your question, now that we've grown to a team of about 20 people, it's really important to me that I strengthen my leadership and managerial skills. Mm-hmm. I think that regardless of where you work or what company you work, this is really foundational stuff. So it's something that I want to have as like a superpower in my tool belt, if you will. For sure. So that's one priority for me. And that's why we're doing a 360. And then I think the other thing that has been consistent for me my entire life is that I'm a major nerd and I love to learn new things. So for example, I'm really excited about 5G, which very few people are talking about. Okay. And we were talking about it a bit at Verizon before I left, but I think a lot of things have changed or probably moved closer to launch since I was there and got was able to get any inside information. And so I've been searching for 5G info online. <laughs> so like... Like randomly, like if you were to come by my house, I would be like, here's what I do on a Friday night. I've got a, like a jigsaw puzzle, a cup of chamomile tea, and I'm like looking up IoT blogs, That's <laughs> networking <awesome>. blogs. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I think that'll continue. That's awesome. We started a, a group two years ago called the COO Alliance, and it's the only network of its kind in the world for the second in command. In fact, there's no entrepreneurs are allowed in the room. You have to be a COO to be a member. The geeks in the room are spectacular. Like I have a woman who is the COO at Service Rocket, and They've got a few hundred employees operating in six countries and she geeks out on poker and chess. I'm like, all right. Yes. But then like she's the most social and fun and interactive human being. She's amazing. All right. One final question, then we'll let you roll because I know you're going to be busy as well. Give us some tip that a second in command could learn from, but also any any real seasoned executive or leader, even though you're working on your skills. What's one great one that you know that other people should be learning from if they could? All right. So I will give one tip, which is the bullet point tip. So I have been successfully using this tip for like probably six or seven years. So it's been useful to me in a ton of different types of jobs. And what it is, is the most effective way to email somebody is to have an opening sentence, three bullet points, and then your ask. And the more you can make the ask a yes or no answer, the better off you are. If you have any types of emails that you need to send, regardless of what it is, it doesn't matter what the project is. If you can get it into this format, it's so effective at getting a quick decision made that you can then you can move and start rolling towards execution. I love that you've systemized it. I've been saying to use bullet points forever and keep it short, but I've never actually heard the one sentence, three bullets, and then the simple ask, yes, no. Like that's perfect. The um, the reality is nobody has time to read all the crap that we're writing, and they so they're skimming it. And if you go too long, they're missing the point anyway. Right. I've tried to at least put some smiley faces into my bullets now because I come off too quick and, and can come off acerbic. I said happy birthday to a friend years ago and he got mad at me. And I'm like, how do you possibly <laughs> get mad when I say happy birthday? He goes, oh, that's all you said. I'm like, well, what, what else am I supposed to say besides happy birthday? I'm busy. He goes, well, you could have taken more time. I'm like, Jesus, how about happy birthday, asshole? Like, what, yes. what else do here? 
<laughs> so, so just putting some smiley faces into my bullets is helping me as well. It does really help. Tone gets lost in email. I use emojis too. There you go. All right, Christy Pitts, thank you so much for sharing everything with us and and the um, really successful growth you're having with Backstage Pass or uh, Backstage Capital. I will make a uh, an intro off to Martine Rothblatt for you later on as well. But really appreciate the time today and sharing with us. Yeah, thank you. This is wonderful. I really appreciate it. All right, take care. You too. You've been listening to Second in Command with Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe. To learn more best practices from industry-leading COOs, please visit COOalliance.com.